see you've left me the, the time. Is that in case I go long? Is that what that is? Yeah, we're good. I, have a, we, I usually ask a trick question in our new member class. How many churches are there in Nashville? You get all kinds of answers. We could go around here. Well, 500,000 churches. This is the South, so lots and lots. But it is a trick question because there's only one church in the city of Nashville. There's only one church in Tennessee in this country and around the globe. If it seeks to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, well, that's one church. And I'm grateful for Judson Baptist. I'm grateful for First Pres. And that the same Lord is Lord over all, Jesus himself. And I'm really grateful for this guy right down here, Jeff Mims and his wife, Kathy, and Sarah Kate and Hampton, the larger family, the gift that they have been to the Moore family. And there have been lots of times that I thought Jeff might screen my calls, uh, because it's usually, Jeff, what am I doing over here? How did I get to Nashville? What's this COVID thing? And he always picks it up. And usually my assistant knows exactly who I'm on the phone with because she hears me laughing. And I think there's something about life with God that is full of joy and full of laughter. If you think about God who created the heavens and the earth, if you look around this beautiful creation, especially on a day like this, it's sun's out, you can almost sense spring coming. This is a God in community, Father, Son, and Spirit, who plays in extraordinarily beautiful ways. And so there's something about our life together right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian community, that we delight in each other's company and that we'd play and that we'd have fun and that others would want to come and taste and see a little bit of what the kingdom of God is all about. And that's really what I want to talk about this evening is the kingdom of God. So last week you began the Lord's Prayer, or you've had some introductory remarks. I want to just back up into verse 10, and then I'm going to take a look at 11, 12, and 13 this evening. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is an extraordinary prayer that the Lord Jesus invites us to offer. When we say our Father, that's a radical thing, that Jesus is inviting us to call God Almighty our Father, But the fact that there's God, and there are lots of philosophers who don't believe in the Christian God, that believe there is some kind of higher power. They don't know him by the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. But it's not all that radical of an idea to claim that there is a God and that he lives in a place like heaven. But then Jesus invites us into a really strange space. He invites us to pray, thy kingdom, not our own, thy kingdom come, and thy will be done. So I'm a Presbyterian. We always have to talk about providence. And we sang this song at the beginning, build your kingdom here. Well, that's shorthand for what Jesus is inviting his disciples and invite, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. Build your kingdom here. Here, Judson Baptist, First Presbyterian Church, here in Nashville. So often I think we have an anemic vision, a diminished vision of what the gospel is, what the kingdom of God really is. Somehow we think that the gospel is that through Jesus, his death and resurrection on the cross, 
as he bears our sins in his body, that we become dead to all that is evil and alive to all that is good. And when we take our last breath or our heart beats for the last time, that then at that moment we somehow enter into the kingdom of God for all eternity. Of course, that is good news. That is the gospel. But it's only part of the gospel. The gospel is so much more radical than that. And it is that life with God, with Jesus as our king, can begin right now in this fellowship, in our homes. That Zoe life that the gospel of John speaks about is not ours in some distant point in the future, but desires by the Spirit's power to rush in, seize us, and transform us and make us more holy his, so that we can bear witness to this kingdom in a credible way. One of the things we love to do as a family is to read at night. We've probably read thousands and thousands of pages in these books and the two boys and um, all kinds of stuff we've read. And we started with Roald Dahl, uh, so that would be James and the Giant Peach and the fantastic Mr. Fox and Of course, one of our favorites is probably one of yours, which was made into a movie, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So it's set in Glasgow in Scotland. Glasgow was known as the second city of the empire in the middle of the 20th century. It was the industrial hub of Great Britain. Next to London, it was the most powerful and influential city in the UK and thereby maybe in the world. Since it's an industrial city, there's lots of wealth, but incredible poverty. It's a despairing place. Even if you visit Glasgow today, you see some unbelievable architecture, but it's all soot-stained. It's all all black from the smokestacks that have poured out over decades all kinds of toxins. And you can just feel when you're in Glasgow, although I love parts of Glasgow, you can feel there's a heaviness. And Royal Dahl, in his children's book, he really captures this in a profound way. Because there's Charlie and his family, they're stuck in a shack, And it's always rainy and gloomy, which we've lived in Scotland, so it is that most of the winter anyways. And you can just feel how oppressive their life is. And then it's Willy Wonka, the great candy maker. Nobody's seen him for years or been in or out of his factory, and everybody wants to peer in. And he begins to issue this contest. Can you find the golden ticket? Everybody's spending all kinds of money all over the globe just to get one of those golden tickets so that you can get out of the Glaswegian air and into this extraordinary factory. So eventually, you know, Charlie finds one of these tickets and the day comes and he goes in and then he enters in and by the end of the book, he's the one who wins a place of taking over the factory. Now that's something of how we often perceive the gospel. That what Jesus does, well, we recognize that this world is despairing, that it's marked by sin. What Jesus does is supply us with a golden ticket to evacuate us out of this world into the next, into something called the kingdom of God. But the New Testament witness is much more profound than that. In actuality, what happens when Jesus comes is is that the kingdom of God rushes into the present. 
So it's as if Willy Wonka opens his factory and the factory begins to infect Glasgow until Glasgow is changed. And that's what we're called to bear witness to as a Christian community, as the church. Build your kingdom here. Let all the beauty and truth and goodness of your eternal kingdom, we don't want to wait. We want to taste it now. Let it rush right into the present where we are at. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Let that kingdom take hold in our life and in our life together. So that when people drive up and down Franklin Pike and they see the kind of community that you are and the kinds of things that you do, they see the kingdom enacted. Jesus is in the vanguard and he invites us, part of his church militant, to begin to let that kingdom come. So the question I want to wrestle with tonight is, what does life look like in the kingdom of God? How does it begin to, to change us? How, how do we as a people begin to look when we live in this kingdom that isn't just something off in the distant? And that's the radical nature of this prayer. That somehow God, as he's present, is with us. You remember back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15, and Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus doesn't say, well, everything's over. Repent and believe and let's get out of here as quickly as we can. And even as you think about the book of Revelation that describes the end of all things. Behold, I make all things new and we'll see the new Jerusalem descending upon the earth, a new heaven and a new earth. That God's life, the triune life of God that's in the heavens can't but help overflow into this world. And we don't have to wait for that to happen. So what does life in the kingdom look like? What kind of people do we become? So if you've got Matthew chapter 6 in front of you, we'll just take this verse by verse. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. We become the kind of people who feast on the daily bread that is given to us. When we live life in the kingdom of God, we become the kind of people that hunger singularly for God himself in Jesus Christ. Give us, that pronoun is so important, because life with Jesus is always life with others. You know, the Christian faith is deeply personal, but it's never private. Ours is always a public faith, Ours is always a shared faith. When we allow ourselves to inhabit the kingdom of God, when we allow it to be realized in us, then we have a hunger for our daily bread, which is Jesus himself. Now, I remember as a kid praying this, and I remember thinking, this is a, this is, I don't like this part of the prayer. Does this mean I have to get rid of my toys? Does this mean I have to get rid of dessert after dinner? Does this mean that I, I'm, as a follower of Jesus, invited to live a diminished existence? It's the opposite. 
what Jesus is inviting the disciples and us to pray is that we do away with all the excess that isn't allowing room for him, the presence of the Spirit, to be at work in our life. So there are some traditions, I happen to be a part of one of these, in the observance of Lent where we fast. These things can always become ritualistic and unhelpful, but in the best sense of a a spiritual practice like this, it's not about what you're giving up. It's about what you're giving up so that you're making room in your life to feast on that which is true and good and beautiful, the living God. And there isn't one of us in this room who doesn't need to remove some excesses so that we have space for God to be present to us. So if you don't practice Lent, you might just in your, don't call it Lent because I know you're Baptist and you don't want to, uh, you know, you just don't call it that, but say, as I make my way to Easter, how is it that I can, how is it that I can do away with some things? I mentioned earlier that we lived in Scotland and for a couple of years and I remember when we made the decision uh, for me to go back to school and head to St. Andrews. And uh, I remember thinking of all the things we were going to have to do without. So we sold our house and sold both of our cars, most everything we had. The rest was in storage. And we just went with uh, four suitcases, two car seats, because we had kids. That was a sight going through Charles de Gaulle as you're trying to get everything. And And I remember thinking, can I live without all of this stuff? Can I live just with my daily bread? It was hard, that transition into life in Scotland, but Heather actually made daily bread. It's the only time in our life where she did that. Things don't have the shelf life. You you go to the market every day uh, to get your food for that day. And there was a stripping away of so many of the excesses that I think prohibit us from living that fully vitalized life with God. My wife, Heather, had a college roommate who was recently graduated from medical school and residency, and she was going to be on the mission field in Africa starting a teaching hospital. This is the time we were living in Scotland, and so I, uh, we decided to go to France. Her language training school was in France in Alberville, and so... We decided we'd go, which is in the French Alps, not a bad place to do language training. And I had all these visions of what a staggeringly beautiful place this would be. And we show up to the, the training center. It was a dive. I mean, an absolute dive. It was clean, but a, a dive. You'd rather camp outside than be in these facilities. And she was with a bunch of doctors, probably a dozen of them, who were going to be starting this teaching hospital And they were all giving up these careers here in the state to live there. And I remember looking out the window. My kids were out in the courtyard. There's this large pile of dirt, probably as high as what the balcony is. And the kids had found a sled that was beat up. And they were just laughing, playing, sliding down that dirt hill, having the time of their life. Daily bread. That's what that is. The stripping away of all the excesses. And when we become citizens of the kingdom of God, when our foot is more firmly established in that than the kingdom of this world, 
then all of those things we consider of value and of worth, they seem, as the old hymn says, to grow strangely dim. And I remember when we moved back from Scotland, we landed in Dulles, my in-laws were in D.C., we bought a car, we traveled west to our new call in Oklahoma, and I remember getting into our routine. And my then preschooler, now a sixth grader, I remember driving him to school one morning. He's used to our life in Scotland, and I remember him saying, this strikes a father's heart, Dad, will you come home before dark anymore? Because I was working longer hours, being away from them. So there are all kinds of things that can creep in and diminish that which are our primary relationships that need attended to. Relationship with God, with Jesus, and our relationship with one another. What does life look like? What kind of people do we become? We become a kind of people who hunger singularly for the bread that is the Lord Jesus, the daily bread that God the Father gives us. Secondly, as we live life in the kingdom, this is verse 12. What kind of people do we become? We come, become a people who stand forgiven and are so capable of extraordinary forgiveness. We say this prayer over and over, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I don't know what translation you have, and Luke, it's sin. If you grew up Methodist or Episcopalian, you would have said trespasses. I, had a, I did a wedding last summer, and I had the grandfather of a bride come up to me and say, why do you Presbyterians say debtors? I said, well, it's in the Bible. That's why we say that. <laughs> Trespasses is there, but it's a few verses down the way. These are two metaphors that Jesus is giving his disciples and us to understand what happens in this act of reconciliation. What, what Jesus is doing as he makes his way to the cross. So with the word debtors, Jesus takes us, similarly to the Apostle Paul, into the accounting house. And what we painfully become aware of as we live our lives is that we have accrued an insurmountable debt to the living God. And the only way we can overcome that debt is by grace alone, through faith alone. There is no possible way that we can work through any effort of our own, through any family ties, through any network that we have, degrees that we possess, to become right with God. The only way we stand forgiven is by the cross of Calvary. The blood was spilt for us and for the life of the world. And then that other metaphor of trespasses, which is simple enough, somebody who encroaches upon someone else's property. And this takes us right into the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are stealing the fruit. And why do they do that? Why do they trespass? Because they want to become like God. What are we forgiven from? It's that we've amassed this debt. It's that we've stolen what is rightfully God. And in the face of all of that, not because we're lovely, not because we've changed our tune, in the face of all that, only because God is love, does he pour out his forgiveness and mercy upon us. 
And when we receive that forgiveness, when we know the depth of our sin, then we can't help but share it with others, even those who have wronged us. There's another old tradition in the church. You all waved at one another, and I'm sure you would have shaken hands. It's called the passing of the peace. And in the ancient church, when it came time after the confessions of sin and the assurance of pardon, friends, hear and believe the good news that in Jesus Christ you stand forgiven and you would turn to one another and pass the peace. And you wouldn't just turn to the person next to you and shake their hand and it wasn't a greeting. You would identify the person in the congregation, in the family of faith, for whom there was a rift, who there needed to be healing. And you went right to them on full display in front of the rest of the family of faith. They knew it anyways. Don't we all know it anyways where the fault lines are in our families of faith? And it was a practice every week, every time a community gathered. We stand forgiven before the cross. And as we receive that forgiveness, it unleashes an extraordinary, uncommon, irrational at times power in us to be agents of that same forgiveness. I have a little clip that I want to play, and this is just from a couple years ago. I have a heart for the Middle East. My mother's Lebanese, and been to the Middle East a few times. There's a really large Presbyterian church that sits right into Crete Square in the middle of Cairo. So lots of friends in the seminary that are there and in that church. And this is a clip. If you follow international news, you know there are not unfrequent, infrequent bombings to churches that happen in that part of the country. This is an interview, a news interview that happens with a mom and her two grown boys. They've lost their father. And then watch the response of the news anchor as he listens to this mother speak about this tragedy that has just torn apart her life. And the news anchor is Muslim, so he's looking in as an outsider on this faith. It's in Arabic, but there are subtitles, so you just have to follow a little bit closely. Let's, let's see if we can pull that up. أقباط مصر مصنوعين من فولاذ أقباط مصر مئات السنين بيتحملوا كوارث ومصايب كتيرة القبط المصري يعشق تراب بلده القبط المصري يتحمل كل شيء عشان وطنه وإيه كمية التسامح اللي عندكوا دي لو أعدائكوا يعرفوا قد إيه أنتوا متسامحين بجد ما كانش حد يصدق 
ده انا لو ابويا والله ما اقول كده ابدا الناس دي عندها كميه تسامح عن حق عن عقيده دول بني ادمين والله مصنوعين من ماده تانيه الله يرحمه عم نسيم بطل وشهيد ومثل اعلى للي قاعد كل واحد في البلد دي يقول لك هي البلد دي ايه والبلد دي ماشيه ازاي البلد دي ماشيه كده البلد دي ماشيه بالصبر بالجلد بالتحمل بالست العظيمه دي بالعيال اللي خلف ما ماتش ضرباهم وعمل رجاله رجاله You know, it always gets me. I, you can see his disbelief. How could he forget? And he even says, I could never forgive if that was my father. Now, there's a really honest question in this news anchor. How does she do it? How does she forgive like this? This kind of radical forgiveness isn't possible out of the generosity of a person's heart. You don't somehow, by a force of the will, decide that you're going to be a forgiving person. It's just not possible, certainly not with something like this. This kind of forgiveness is only possible as an expression of gratitude to the living God. Recognizing that we stand in the place of the condemned. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes. Were you there when they nailed him to a tree? Yes. Oh, I tremble. And when we come to realize our place in the brokenness of this world and we see as the old Isaac Watts hymn says that love divine how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me when we know the depth of our sin the wideness God's grace and when the very life of Jesus by the spirit fills us, it's only then that we can practice this extraordinary grace-filled forgiveness that has been shown to us on the cross. As we inhabit the kingdom of God, what kind of people do we become? We become people stand, who stand forgiveness at the cross and are so capable of extraordinary Forgiveness. Finally, as we live in the kingdom of God, we come, become a kind of people who stay close to Jesus. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So if verse 12 is about the evil that's within us, then this verse is about the evil that is outside of us. The evil one, some translators have it. That there are those forces seen, certainly, we know those all too well, but there are also, as Paul says, those unseen powers and principalities 
the desire to be operative in our life if we but would but let them. You probably know this by now, but the Christian life is no safe harbor. To be a follower of Jesus, well, it invites us to step out in faith in just such a way that people will be threatened by this kingdom that comes and the king who reigns. And it means that we'll have to, like so many martyrs who've gone before, to count the cost. And in those first several centuries of the church, those first three centuries at least, there was lots of persecutions, pockets of persecution. And then in 313, when Constantine issues the Edict of Milan and Christianity became legalized, well, there's been a long season, at least in the West, certainly not in other parts of the world, where it was just fine to be a follower of Jesus. But I wonder if we're moving into a season where being a follower of him will cost us. And we look for, to all those saints who've gone before us, sinners made saints who've gone before us, who peered into the lion's mouth and they've seen that it's worthy to step into their death with gladness of heart, knowing that as their life belongs, body and soul, mind and spirit, to their faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that everlasting joy awaits. And so when we think about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, we come with eyes, we come with eyes wide open to recognize that the Lord Jesus and the way of Jesus is life-giving, but there are also seasons where it can be hard. It was 30 years ago, I don't know if you would know the name of John Stott, who was an Anglican pastor in Britain, and he was an evangelist, impacted the global church, and he preached a sermon 30 years ago, in 1990 or so, and he, he said... Um, one of the greatest questions that's facing the church today is whether we're prepared to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, however unpopular, or whether we want to follow our own opinions or the opinions of others or the conventions of the day. That seemed to be prescient because that is one of the core questions that faces my life, faces my kids in their schools, faces all of us in our places of employment. Are we prepared to follow the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ to pray that his kingdom would come or do we desire to follow our own opinions or to get swept up in the currents of our culture, to acquiesce to those currents and to let them carry us and they will carry us farther away from Jesus, which means farther away from fullness of life. The good, great news of the gospel is not that we get to live forever. That's not what Jesus does. The good news of the gospel is that we get to live forever with God, with Father, Son, and Spirit. And that because of what Jesus has done for us and also what he's doing to us, when the Father looks at us, 
he sees beloved children. Though we know we're broken, though we know we're sinful, the father sees children and he desires to welcome us into his home, not as strangers, not as guests, but children at home in his table. I wonder if we might be able to pull up. I've got a little piece of artwork here I want to show you. That's somewhat hard to see. This is, thank you, this is a Rembrandt. And this was in the Boston Museum. I say it was because 30 years ago, there was a break-in and there was a thief who cut it out of the frame. The frame still stands empty if you've been in the Boston Art Museum uh, and it's never been replaced, but they're waiting for that day. Somebody has a lot of money hanging on their wall and they can't show it to anybody. And this, of course, is Jesus, Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee is how Rembrandt named it. You might have to go home and take a look at it. But of course, Jesus is asleep, not at this moment, but he is in the story, asleep in the back of the boat. Jesus, Jesus, don't you care about us? And you can see in the top half of the painting that folks are straining to save themselves. And if you could see a little bit more closely, you would know that nobody in the top half of the painting, none of them are looking at Jesus. They're all looking at the task in front of them, thinking that they can overpower the storm. And yet in the back half of the boat, and Rembrandt, some artists are some of the best exegetes of Scripture. Poets, musicians, Artists often exegete scripture the best because they have these fully formed imaginations. When they read a text, they see it for what it is. So Rembrandt, as he paints this, as you make your way down to the right-hand side, bottom of the painting, you, as you move towards Jesus, it's as if the painting comes to a standstill. They're still in a storm. But as your eye comes towards Jesus, everything becomes quiet before it actually is quiet. And everybody who's on the bottom half of the boat is looking at Jesus, fixing their eyes on him. Lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. We're not as Christians in a safe harbor. But if Jesus is in your boat, then in the eye of the storm you know that you have a sure and certain hope that he will hold you fast, as the psalmist says. As I think about my own life of faith, and I think about this last year, Jeff, I think it was a year ago, wasn't it, that we had to suspend worship uh, thanks to our fine public officials, and um, that was a little bit of humor. It's about a year ago, and I don't think any of us knew what the year would hold. And I can tell you for a first-year pastor, in a first year in his church, I felt like I was out to sea in the eye of a storm. But it was folks like Jeff and other friends who've reminded me, when Jesus is in the boat, when we invite his kingdom to come, build it here, when we feast on him singularly, 
when we seek our daily bread and that alone, when we allow his forgiveness to take hold in our lives and then to practice that, when we trust that he will lead us not into temptation but deliver us from all evil, even pandemics, then we know the best in him is always yet to come. We sang a great old hymn of the church this morning. It's a Welsh hymn, came from the Welsh revival. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. You probably know that one. Pilgrim in a weary land. The last verse goes, When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fear subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. It's a song of a pilgrim on the way to the promised land, on the way to the kingdom of God, who has come up against a roadblock that seems as if, or it should, take his life. Treading the verge of Jordan. Maybe some of you are there right now. When I surrender my life into the care and keeping in the hands of this loving God, he alone is able, and I'm here to testify, he is willing to land you safe on Canaan's side. Let's pray. Loving God, I thank you for this congregation. It's out of the depths we cry to you. As we've sung, our sins are many, your mercies are infinitely more. And we come in this long, dark night of a pandemic. And then we have our own troubles and our own struggles and fault lines that we know all too well. And we, like the psalmist, wait like watchmen for the morning. So come, Lord Jesus. Come and Shine your life-giving light into a darkened world and our own darkened hearts. Do not leave us as we are. Transform us, as the old hymn says, from glory into glory. And land us safe in the kingdom of God to do your will and to delight in your presence, now, forever, and always. Hallelujah. Amen.